The following is a presentation of the Sovereign Tech podcast feed. Ready for your weekly tech fix? Want to know how technology sets us free? Well, get ready because here it comes. You're listening to Sovereign Tech with your host, entrepreneur and technophile Brian Sovereign. He's got a huge brain. And now, here's Brian. Here I am, the golden stallion of the tech world, Brian Sovereign, here for another great, great episode of Sovereign Tech. Um, before we get into today's story, it's a really nice story, but before we get into that, I want to make some, I want to mention on SovereignTech.com, there has been a couple of changes, and one of those changes is that on the Google Plus link, that will actually take you now directly to my Google, my personal, Brian Sovereign's Google Plus page, and you can interact with me there directly. I'm on Google Plus all the time, um, so you know, don't hesitate to make use of that. Don't hesitate to put me in your circles, be it acquaintances or following or whatever. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I fully welcome it, and I think Google Plus is a great time. I'm I'm getting such a great response from kind of the international audience of the show. And so I want to make everything as available as possible to them, as well as to everybody in the United States. Uh, and Google plus really has turned out to, in many ways to be the best way to do that. Uh, so you can find that through sovereigntech.com, but also now you'll notice this on the Google plus page, as well as on sovereigntech.com. There are now, there's a QR code on the pages for one is for Bitcoin. They're clearly labeled. One is for Bitcoin and the other QR code is for Litecoin. And that is so that you can, if you wish to donate to the show, I've had a lot of people uh, ask me, you know, Brian, I'd like to donate to the show. How can I do that? Now there's the Amazon link, which has been plausible, you know, been possible to use to do that. Um, but now also, if you do want to directly donate to the show you can do it through uh you know through the sovereigntech.com or even the google plus page even the facebook the sovereign tech facebook page it can be done on um now some may think that that comes as a degree of a 180 because one of the reasons i actually i did not want to accept donations for the show or i did not you know want to accept uh you know any kind of payment or whichever part of that was due to the fact that I didn't want my quote unquote ideas to be bought and sold. Um, I did not, you know, but here's the beauty with Bitcoin and Litecoin, unless you tell me, you know, I, I have no idea who even donated. Do you get what I'm saying? So like CBS can't send me Bitcoins and say, Hey, okay, now you need to review our products and be nice, or you need to not review the products we don't want you to review. Kind of like uh, CNET does now, and The Verge does, where you know their their opinions are bought and paid for by CBS. Um, so that you know, so that still that can't happen. I mean, even if CBS said, "Look, hey, we're the ones that sent you, you know, fifty bitcoins or a thousand litecoins or something," how can they prove that? I have no idea that they're the ones that sent that. So anyway, if you do, I've, I'm only doing, I'm doing this by request. People have requested, look, I would, I really get something out of your show, Brian. I'd like to send you, you know, uh, some thanks. And I've gotten plenty of emails of thanks and that's great. Uh, but they wanted, you know, to do something kind of monetary. And so there you have it. You can now, uh, send bitcoins or litecoins directly to the show, to sovereign tech. Uh, so make use of that if you wish to. Um, okay. So let's, 
let's get right into uh, today's uh, the the opening story, which I, I think is really really great, and it's from Life Hacker, and it's kind of a guest post by a guy named John Gorzin, and it's I raised my kids on the command line, and they love it. Okay, what's the command line? The command line is okay. You have the you have a GUI, what's called a GUI, G U I, graphical user user interface. And that is like when you look at Windows or you look at uh, at Apple, you know, uh, OS X or whatever, you know, since everything's all pretty in pictures and all that stuff, that's what's that's a GUI. That's a graphic user interface as to where the command line is like if you can remember what DOS looked like or if you've ever seen like people doing like hacking or something uh, where it's all very, you know, everything's all text. You know, and you have to type in commands to do anything on the computer. You can't click on anything. There's no mouse. That's what they mean by command line. Uh, So we'll go right into the story. This guy is raising his kids on the command line. Uh, Two years ago, my son Jacob, then three, uh, and I built his first computer together. I installed Debian on it. uh, That's a Linux distribution, but never put a GUI on the thing. It's command line and has provided lots of enjoyment off and on over the last couple of years. The look of shock I get from people. When I explain as if it's perfectly natural that my child has been able to log in by himself to a Linux shell since age three are amusing and astounding, especially considering that it's, you know, it is really not that hard. Instead of learning how to run an Xbox, he's learned how to run Bash. I like that. Uh, Lately, Jacob, now five, hasn't been spending much time with it. He isn't really at a stage where he wants to push his limits too far, I think, but yet also gets bored with the familiar. So I thought it was time to introduce a GUI in a limited fashion, perhaps to let him download photos and video from his VTech toy camera. Um, And he's familiar with the concept, at least somewhat, having seen GUIs on uh, Tara's computer uh, and mine. Tara would be his wife. So last night, Oliver, age two, and I went down to the basement on a mouse-finding expedition. Sure enough, I had an old uh, PS2 mouse down here, down there that would work fine. The boys both helped string it through the desk up on our play, uh, uh, up on our playroom, and were tremendously excited to see the red light underneath it when the computer came on. Barely able to contain the excitement, really. A bit like I remember being when I first when I got my first mouse at a bit of an older age, I suppose. <laughs> I helped them uh, in as uh, I helped him them in as root for the very first time. Okay, that that's bad English. Uh, Jacob typed root, and I typed the password and provided the explanation for why we were telling the computer we were root. Now you have to be a root user to do anything like really serious in a computer, and so he's teaching his kids. Okay, this is why you have to be you know in root. Um, you know, to, to do anything here, to be able to add in, because what they're doing right now is he's actually teaching his kids how to manually add in a mouse. And so that's why they have to go to root. Uh, I mean, this is pretty, pretty deep stuff. Um, I, let's see the, then while we waited for software to download. Okay. So they're, they're doing the apt get where they're, they're, they typed in a command in Linux that says apt get, and that you know, goes online and down downloads the, you know, the driver for the mouse so that the mouse will work. Uh, while we waited for software to download, I had to answer repeated questions of how soon will the mouse work and what does install mean? Remember, the kid's like five years old. I think the other one was two years old. Finally, it was there and I told Jacob to type start X. I intentionally did not install a display manager. More on that later. I pressed enter. The screen went blank for about five seconds and then X appeared. Excited can't begin to describe how they acted. They took turns playing with the mouse. They loved how the trash icon, uh, 
they started with Crossface, which is a you know that's a GUI. Uh, showed trash in the in the trash can. So again, all this stuff that's perfectly like normal, you know, to 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 the average computer user, where you see trash in the trash can, uh, you see you know like all these icons do little things, like when you drag and drop something, you actually see the file that you're moving kind of like graphically drag and drop along with it. And these kids are just like, whoa, yeah, you know, they they barely had any idea computers did this because they're so used to everything being on the command line. Um. You know, but they were just learning the mouse will go on with the article, and there's a lot about a typical GUI that is unfriendly to someone that isn't yet proficient with a mouse. The close buttons are disappointingly small. Things can be too easily dragged on and off the panel and menus. When I sat down to think about it, the typical GUI design does not present a very good, it always works the same interface that would be good for a child. And then it occurred to me, the perfect GUI for a child would simply would be simply Xmonad, um, which is a tiling window manager that can be controlled almost entirely by keyboard, uh, and has no need for mouse movements in most cases. So it's a GUI that runs mainly off a of keyboard. No desktop environment, no file manager in the root window. Just a window manager in the classic X way, of course. Uh, so after the boys were in bed, I installed Xmonad. I gave Jacob's account a simple .x session that starts a terminal in Xmonad. Today, Jacob informed me that he wanted his computer to look just like yours, playing right into my hands, that was. But when he excitedly typed start X, he said it wasn't just like mine. Uh-oh. Turns out he wanted the same wallpaper as my computer uses. Whew. We found it. I figured out that XLI1 loads it in the root window, and so I added a third line to the X session, more delight unlocked. Jacob mastered the basics of Xmonad really quickly. Alt-Shift-C to close a window. Alt-Shift-Q to quit back to the big black screen. Alt-Shift-Enter to get a, a terminal window. I like that, the big black screen. Um, he watched impatiently his app get, you know, counted down uh, a minute and 30 seconds for Tux Paint and its library. So he's putting little programs on there, a painting program. Then we launched it and he wanted to skip supper so he could keep playing Tux Paint on his very own computer. My very own computer, he said. Uh, I've been debating debating how to introduce GUIs for a long time. It has not escaped my attention that children that used Commodores or TRS-80s or DOS, all those, <laughs> all three of those I've actually used. I had I had an old Radio Shack computer, uh, and which is the TRS-80 uh, with the Tandy, and I also had the Commodore 64, and obviously DOS was life changing for just about everybody. Uh, in that, in the, the nineties, anyway, the early nineties, uh, DOS was the thing anyway, uh, you know, the children that used Commodores or TRS eighties or DOS knew a lot more about how their computers worked on average than those of the same age that used windows or Mac OS. I didn't want our boys to skip an entire phase of learning, uh, how their technology works. I am pleased that, uh, with this solution, they still run commands to launch things yet get to play with more than text-based programs. Uh, at bedtime, Jacob asked me very seriously, dad, how do I start tux paint again? First you log in and type start X, then you can use the mouse. Jacob nods a contemplative look on his face. That's, that's so cute. Then I continue, you type tux paint in the terminal and it comes right up. Jacob nodded very seriously a second time as if committing this very important information to long-term memory, then gave a single excited clap, yelled great and dashed off. It's like the kid just went, yeah. And it was, <laughs> it was really nice. And, you know, it, it makes me, I, I can't help 
the key to this whole article, okay, now, first off, it's beautiful that parents are interacting with their kids in such a serious way, you know, and not treating a child like it's a, like it's a little idiot, you know what I mean? Or that it's a little fool that, that the, the dad is like, no, you know what? The kid can understand completely how command line works, how GUIs work and all that stuff. I just have to explain it and, and take the time and connect with the child. And I think, okay, first off, I mean, that is the most beautiful thing that you could possibly read, you know, in any tech article, <laughs> I think. But I want to reread a, a certain paragraph because this is, this is something that kind of hits home for me. And this is going to kind of turn into an opinion piece on my part. Um, and the, the, the paragraph is I'd been debating how to introduce GUIs for a very long time. It has not escaped my attention that children that used Commodores or TRS eighties or DOS knew a lot more about how their computers worked on average than those of the same age that use windows or Mac OS. I didn't want our boys to skip an entire phase of learning how their technology works. Okay, this, <laughs> this is kind of the thrust. No one knows how computers work anymore, it seems. No one understands, like, everyone just, oh, it's a graphic interface, and, and it just does it, and it just works. And I agree with the father here that I think there is something missing. There is, it's amazing how... You know, in my generation, I, I was born in 1981. Okay. There was always a computer in my house, always a computer in my house. Uh, if not multiple computers, of course, growing up. And it's interesting that, okay, I have an older brother and he is not, uh, actually he's dyslexic and not because of his dyslexia, but in many ways, he's not the brightest brick on the block. However, you know, and he's not, he's not, he doesn't, he doesn't like technology. He's not, actually, he's kind of like a self-sufficiency kind of guy to, to some degree. Um, he lives out in the woods, you know, he's not a technology guy by any means, but interestingly, <laughs> he can do more with the computer than probably 75% of the world's population. Um, part of that is not that he spent any grand time like learning it or that he's like keeping up to date on the latest Linux distribution or things like that. But part of it is because he's used computers from the very beginning and thus he knows the core of what makes a computer work. Does it make sense what I'm saying? He, he has like, it's like if you're going to teach life, you know, how life works or like literally how life exists, like how a cheetah somehow exists, you know, it's like, what if you started at the atomic level and you taught life from that level and then up and then everything would kind of make sense. Right. I mean, is that, do you follow me? And so I think it's a very powerful thing because, you know, the command line hasn't gone away. DOS has really, I wouldn't be shocked. Okay. If DOS wasn't still somehow at the very core, I know they say that it's not. All right. But now DOS is this command line, the disk operating system. It used to be to get into to Microsoft Windows. You would have to, your computer would actually first, this was back in the 90s. Your computer would first boot into DOS. And then you would have to, you know, like a little, little letter would appear that said C colon slash. And you'd have to type in windows.exe. 
Actually, you'd have to type in cd backslash windows, and then you'd have to type in windows.exe, but that's getting technical. Anyway, to get into Windows, like Windows 3.1 or Windows 95, in fact, to get to Windows 95 is win95.exe, whatever, that's all technical stuff. Okay. And I'd, I think, <laughs> really, I, I think DOS is still kind of in there in Windows. And so my point being is that if you have like this base knowledge of how computers work, it's amazing how well you can easily adapt to any other kind of computer. And I think this is something that's missing. Um, I'm reminded of, you know, the Internet when we'll say like in 95 and 96 when it first started. You know, it wasn't until like the early 2000s that suddenly there was this big scare that, oh, you, you know, you, there's, there's predators on the other side of the screen and, and they're going to, you know, they're, they're going to steal your children and they're going to, you know what I mean? Like, like all this bad stuff, you can't trust who's on the internet and all that. Well, interestingly enough, I, I, I feel that in like 1996, you actually, you could trust to some degree the other person, the person on the other side of the screen that you would talk to over the internet. Why could you do that? Because there was an instantaneous level of knowledge that you both shared because it wasn't easy to get on the internet back then. It wasn't easy to figure out a chat room back then, unless it was like America online, but who, who used that? Um, so, you know, there, there was just, there was, there was that set knowledge that you had that you could both share. And there was that set like pride. There was like that instantaneous pride that you both felt for being able to talk to, you know, be, just being able to talk to each other. You, you're already like, it was like, you're two guys that were climbing a mountain and you both got to the top of the mountain, you know, and you're just like, yeah, good job. You're just happy to talk to each other, you know? And, you know, I don't want to make the claim. There's some people that kind of make the claim that, um, you know, computers were never meant for, for everybody to use. I've, I've, I, it, full, full disclosure, I have said that in the past, that computers were not made for everybody to use, but that's just not true because computers are for everybody to use. It's a beautiful thing. What technology is allowing so many people to do everybody to do, you know, I mean, computers are allowing for tremendous, uh, you know, entrepreneurship, uh, you know, everybody's doing their banking and we're, I mean, you have bitcoins and litecoins that are all over the place with, you know, with computers, which is just, fantastic uh you know that, that people have control of their money thanks to computers and the money has gotten away from you know the you know from the banks thanks to computers uh you know i love how far all this technology you know has gone no no question about it um but i i guess you know i guess i'm feeling like that that i, I wish you know more people would get into kind of the nuts and bolts of their computers you know an interesting point is that and, and most people don't realize this. The average person doesn't need anything more than Windows 95. Windows 95 had everything. It had, uh, you know, it had Internet Explorer, so it has Internet. Um, it has, you know, just it had, it had everything that anybody ever uses in computers. The only thing, and it's not like the use of computers has changed that much. I mean, Microsoft has tried with Windows 8 to change how it works. But it, everything still pretty much works the same. You know, it's icons, dragging, dropping, you know, and all that stuff. Um, the only reason that, that computers have gotten any more, any more powerful, really, is maybe to run Photoshop, if that, um, but is, like, for video games, you know. And 
I think there's something, you know, speaking of video games, I think, I think there's something to the statement that, you know, this, that, that this father was making that his, his son wasn't learning, you know, how to operate an Xbox. He was actually learning how to use a computer. And that's a very powerful thing because if you can understand the base level of how a computer works, you can handle any piece of technology. Maybe that's the point of overall I'm trying to make is that I think it's a good idea to at least get some understanding, you know, of how, you know, of, of, of the real nuts and bolts of how a computer functions on the software level. Uh, the hardware level really is easy. People, I, 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 I totally understand, you know, divisional labor and, and I don't want everybody to be computer experts and whatever. I'm not saying that. Okay. Uh, but you know, I mean, the hardware side of things is really, really easy. Most people just don't realize it. Um, but you know, putting together a computer is, is, I mean, it's as simple as Legos. Uh, I'm not saying that because I'm some kind of, you know, really intelligent person, which I am, but I'm not saying that because of that. I'm saying it not really is just, it's that simple to do. Um, but you know, it, it's a powerful thing to have that good of an understanding of computers, especially when we're in a world where computers literally do run everything. And, you know, I really, I want to implore my listeners to maybe look into this stuff to understand, you know, one of the best things, one of the most fun things you can do, you can go to newegg.com, Okay. And they, they will help you as much as they can. They have whole like videos and programs on, uh, you know, okay. How to build your own computer because it's a, it's a really empowering thing to build your own computer, to build your own access to the world, to, you know, I mean, it's, it's, you can't, until you build your first one, you don't know. And, and it can be done for cheap. You know, computers can be built for a couple hundred bucks these days, halfway decent ones. And it, it, it's just, I, I can't express to you just how awesome it feels to finally build your own computer. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more in this episode, uh, during the listener email section. But because I actually, I got a question, okay, how do we build a mining rig and building a mining rig is like, you know, it's a computer, a computer is a computer is a computer. And so I'm really, I'm imploring my listeners, you know, I think the story is so beautiful again, just on the level of that, that parents are connecting with their children in such a wonderful way. But, you know, I, I like how it shows that, yeah, you know, anybody can learn this and the point of just how, how adaptable you are to any computer and how well you can know a computer just by working like the command line or just by getting that deeper understanding, you know, just how, just how incredible that can be. And, you know, I mean, learning how to use things, you know, and understanding them does set one more free. Anyway, I'll be back with more Sovereign Tech. This is Brian Sovereign. You're listening to Sovereign Tech with me, Brian Sovereign, the man who always wears triple black. Sovereign Tech is a show about science and technology and how it can set you free. Remember, Sovereign Tech only endorses businesses and products that we genuinely believe in and support ourselves. If you have a product or website that you would like to have reviewed, you can email the show at SovereignTech at Hush.ai. Please keep in mind that the reviews on Sovereign Tech pull no punches. Thanks for listening. Tech Roulette.
Wanna play? It is time for Tech Roulette, where I cover the stories that get submitted to me, be it through Sovereign Tech at hush.ai, uh, through SovereignTech.com, or even through the Google Plus page or the Facebook page, um, all of which can be, fi- be found you know, across the web with an easy, easy search. Or you can go to SovereignTech.com and it connects to everything. Uh, or even on Twitter. So, you know, I... I stuff gets posted there at least once a week. Um, I'm not as active on Twitter as I am on other things. Um, just because I, I kind of, you know, a little sidetrack here. I kind of have a, a beef with Twitter in that they readily and seemingly happily will remove political posts, uh, oppositional political posts from users, uh, you know, that the users post uh, in various countries they've done it in Australia. They're talking about doing it in Iran and Saudi Arabia uh, where they're just like, Oh yeah, this goes against the regime that's running things. Okay. We'll delete that for you. Don't worry. Uh, I, that is so unfree. That is so disgusting and nobody's really in up in arms about it. And in fact, I've only seen one place that broke the story. Um, you know about that so it's kind of like something that i wonder if twitter is like anytime somebody says on twitter hey twitter's deleting our post they delete the post that does it you know what i mean so i have a real real problem that's not to say other other social media sites don't kowtow to governments too i'm sure to some degree they do uh but twitter is particularly bad about it anyway um so we have a story this week from someone that wishes to be remain anonymous and it's from the guardian in in the united kingdom uh, I have a lot of a lot of listeners in Britain. I'm very happy about that. And this is scientists create transistor-like biological device. Uh, Stanford researchers demonstrate transcriptors inside E. coli bacteria in advance in synth- in uh, synthetic biology. Okay, so what's this all about? Let's read on. Again, you can find all these stories are linked to in the show notes, and you can get the show notes at SovereignTech.com. You can get it at the SoundCloud page, SoundCloud.com slash SovereignTech. It's all there. Scientists have used biological tissue to recreate one of the main components of a modern computer inside living cells. The biological device behaves like a transistor, one of the tiny switches that are etched onto microchips in the billions to perform computer calculations. Okay, so they've created the biological equivalent of a transistor. Uh, the researchers demonstrated the device inside E. coli bacteria, one of the most common bugs used in genetic engineering. The work marks one of the latest advances in the growing field of synthetic biology, which recasts biology as a tool set for engineers. Writing in the journal uh, Science, researchers at Stanford University explain how their biological transistors could be connected together inside living cells to perform computing jobs, such as controlling how genes are expressed in an organism. Led by Drew Endy, a pioneer in the field, the team showed that different arrangements of biological transistors worked like logic gates, which take input signals and process them into different outputs or different different outputs uh, in keeping with their heritage Andy calls these arrangements boolean integra- integrase logic gates bil logic gates um normal transistors control the flow okay a, a logic gate see what, what a logic gate is on a transistor is it kind of 
it's like the last piece that tells exactly how the information going through the transistor is supposed to come out. Um, and it, it can close off certain things from getting in. Uh, in fact, a uh, funny, kind of a funny aside, funny, funny story. Like if you, <laughs> if you ever saw the original movie Tron, there's a point where they actually drop, they, they close the door and it's called a logic gate. And then in fact, the, the villain in it, Sark says, okay, bring in a logic probe. You know, they, they don't actually say it's a logic gate, but then he says, bring in the logic probe because what it is is that it, it would be the logic probe, which can, you know, th- these things kind of exist. It figures out, okay, exactly how do we get, you know, what can go through this logic gate? How can we get through it? How can we break it? Okay, anyway, so it, it works sort of like a battering ram of sorts. So if that gives you some some idea of a better picture of what logic gates are, you know, hope that helps. Anyway, normal transistors control the flow of electrons along metal wires. In the biological device, dubbed a transcriptor instead of transistor it's a transcriptor the wire is a strand of dna and the electrons are replaced by an enzyme Uh, a modern computer chip holds several billion transistors that are wired together to carry out calculations the same can be achieved with transcriptors each of which is built from about 150 letters of the genetic code scientists hope to build computers within living cells that perform useful jobs the first thing that can be done are more precise uh, biosensing. You could see if a cell has been exposed to different combinations of chemicals and have a specific signal only when a certain pattern of interest shows up, uh, say glucose and caffeine, said Jerome Bonnet, the, the first author on the paper. In the longer term, we hope biocomputers can be used to study and reprogram living systems and improve cellular uh, therapeutics, he said. Cellular therapeutics is a field of medicine that draws on genetics and cell biology to generate and replace dead or diseased tissues and organs. As part of an ongoing effort among synthetic biologists to build up a stock of components, the Stanford team has made the designs of the transcriptor and BIL gates public and free to use. Awesome. Okay, Uh, most of biotechnology has not yet been imagined, let alone made true. Uh, By freely sharing important basic tools, everyone can work better together bonnet said uh last year the uk government invested more than uh, 100 million pounds in technology designed in part to help britain compete in a market for synthetic biology potentially worth uh, 100 billion dollars the pentagon has invested heavily too and asked scientists to pitch for funds to back projects that range from chemical sensing to new ways to detect enemy troops well before we get into that end of things, let me just totally congratulate uh, the Stanford team here for just making this essentially open source and putting it all out there free to use. You know, it's all public knowledge. Look, we're not holding on to this. You know, this isn't going to be some kind of crazy patent. Just, you know, let's let's start making this happen. Let's, um, you know, let's get this information out there. And because when we're all working together, it'll develop 20 million times as fast. And. You, you get what I'm saying and you get what they're saying and it just makes sense, you know, and, and they're going to get the credit on the paper, you know, for the rest of their lives. And, you know, if, if this ends up being something huge, which it appears they have the potential to be, you know, they get the credit and they don't necessarily need the money, but, uh, the, I'm sure there's cash prizes involved as well. Anyway. Um, unfortunately, as it seems with a lot of technologies that 
the government really has nothing to do with um, other than maybe, you know, funds and grants. Uh, unfortunately, it seems like the military already wants to get in on this, uh, you know, with detecting enemy troops. But, you know, let, let, let's talk a little bit more with now. Now, how, how would they detect enemy troops with this chemical sensing? Um, the idea is that I, I'm guessing that not enemy troops, as in like the good guys, would have these, you know, literally the, these transcriptors, okay, uh, these biological transistors would send a specific signal that would look different from the enemy. And so you could tell who's who on a battlefield, maybe something like that. Uh, positively terrifying because quite frankly, I don't care how someone shows up on, on a detection screen. They're all human and there's no need to treat one different than the other. So that bothers me. Obviously, uh, I wish, you know, with these transcripts, with these transcriptors, with these, you know, uh, Biolog, you know, transistor-like biological devices. What I wish we could figure out is, is like, you know, how could we turn off the communications going on in living cells that somehow, <laughs> you know, lend someone to 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 want to go to war? <laughs> but no, I I wouldn't. I don't want to control you know the human condition in that fashion. And you know, I suppose that's a concern that a lot of people have is that this sort of technology would, while it can be used to, you know, maybe control uh, certain you know, like they mentioned caffeine, you know, so could these transcriptors, could these essentially keep like cut off the effects of caffeine when you drink it, you know? Uh, and so then I suppose people could wonder, okay, you know, what else could these kind of like cellular, you know, what could these, these machines at a cellular level, essentially, uh, what else could they cut off, you know? And then, so I could see where people would be very concerned. And I think that's part of the reason the emailer sent this in is that they're concerned that somehow this is going to turn into uh, biological control of the human condition by governments. And I mean, this is at a really early stage, you know, to say that somehow that's the idea or that's what they wanted to do. And I'm not entirely sure that all that's even really possible, you know, I mean, maybe I could envision somehow this technology, again, if it can control through the proverbial logic gate, uh, what they call a BIL gate, if they could control like, you know, certain types of things running through your system, um, like maybe like it could keep adrenaline from getting to your system or something. Maybe could that make somehow a, a passive, you know, human race, um, you know, that, that, that's, uh, susceptible to taking orders or something. Um, I, I suppose maybe, you know, maybe that, that's, that's something that's, that's coming. Um, the, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, that gets into some serious conspiracy territory that, that there's people that would actually want that to happen. Um, but you know, when, when you mess with, with some of this stuff, I mean, like, like I, you know, maybe there's ways to, for this to help with disease and that'd be great. Uh, you know, to turn, to turn biology into a literal form of engineering, where you can actually like, you know, and, and picture an engineer working on a machine where, you know, they lay out the plans for the machine and they can, you know, okay, this cog does this, this does this, this does this, you know, that's actually beneficial to humans overall, because maybe we could find out, you know, and I don't know if this is true or not, but I, I know this is a, a something that information that's been passed around quite a bit by various news sources or on various documentaries or whatever. Um, the idea that, 
uh, you know, we don't know why we age. Like we don't understand cellular decay or something. And maybe that's true. Maybe that isn't. But, you know, could this help with solving that mystery? If that is such a mystery, sure could. You know, so there's there's a lot of really beneficial things to take out of this, too. Not just necessarily, oh, you know, they're going to control us. They're going to control us. Uh, you know, they're, they're going to rewrite our DNA and all this stuff, and they're going to do it for the bad. Um, I think, you know, I, I really think, granted, I understand that there are people that are in power. You know, there are governments that are in power and that they often can control money and that they talk from the top down and, you know, and they get people, you know, generally good people to do very terrible things. But I think generally people are good. And I don't think I, I really do kind of have the, the belief that, you know, if scientists were asked, okay, you need to figure out how to, you know, how to make humans do this and do that, that they would say no. You know, I, I mean, maybe that's just me being hopeful. And of course me being an atheist, uh, I believe that humans are generally good, you know, that they're not born bad. Now, if you're of, uh, if you're more of a more sinful bent, if you know, if you believe in the idea of original sin, then obviously you believe that when someone's born, they're instantly bad. And so, yeah, sure. Of course they do this, but I, I really, I, I think the average person just wants to be left alone. I do not think the average person is a megalomaniac. I do not think the average person uh, has the desire for that kind of control. And I certainly think that if there is, you know, that if somehow that's not the average, that that's a byproduct of a society that teaches those platitudes, not that they're, you know, like inherent within humans. And I suppose that raises a question to, you know, what is like the real importance to this, you know, is in fact a lot of this now, I mean, if this can help with diseases and aging and all that stuff, that's great. That makes it worth it. But if we really want to make like lives better, you know, maybe we should be looking more at psychological answers. Maybe we should be looking more at, uh, you know, self-therapy or going to, you know, going to, to, you know, for therapeutic sessions and, you know, uh, seeking out, you know, therapeutic professionals. Um, I mean, that, that, those, those are all actually very powerful things. And I think there's a lot more answers in that so much than there are, you know, in, in like trying to rewire, you know, how our brains work. Um, now, interestingly, you know, I like the idea that somehow it could counteract maybe the effects of caffeine. Um, but you know, I wonder if like this could be used for alcohol, you know what I mean? Like I remember in Star Trek, uh, yeah, I have to mention Star Trek every episode, I guess. Um, they had what was called like synthahol where it was alcohol without any of the effects. Now, frankly, this is just my own opinion. I am not insulting people that drink alcohol. I am not insulting the producers of alcohol or people that enjoy alcohol. I am not doing that. But to my own opinion, frankly, like <laughs> if alcohol doesn't have the effects that alcohol has, what's the point? Like, does it really taste good? I don't, I, I mean, I think beer tastes like piss. It's, it's terrible. And, you know, I'm, I'm not a drinker at all. Uh, I, in fact, I make it a point to, to really not drink, but 
you know, and that's not a judgment. I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm just laying out an opinion, but anyway, I suppose it'd be interesting. I mean, if there's people that genuinely get a, you know, a real enjoyment out of alcohol, you know, maybe this, the, these transcriptors, uh, you know, these biological logic gates can keep, you know, alcohol from maybe affecting the brain so much. Uh, it's interesting. I mean, the, the possibilities seem relatively, you know, endless. Um, you know, and of course I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not a doctor and I'm theorizing on a lot of how this stuff actually kind of works. So, but again, I, I think the main point, the, the reason that this article was sent to me is I think someone was like, okay, Hey, you know, they're going to start, they're going to like somehow put the stuff in the water and then it's going to infect your system through like some degree of nanotechnology or something, which is, this is nanotechnology. Uh, I mean, it's synthetic biology. So no, all right. Inaccurate. It's not nanotechnology. Synthetic biology would be a different thing. Nanotechnology would still be a machine essentially, but this is like reordered biology. Um, so, you know, I, I just, I don't, I don't see that happening. You know, is it, is it a possibility that that's what people would do with this kind of knowledge? Sure. But at the same time, you know, what's, what's the, you know, what, what can allow you to sleep at night when this kind of thing can exist, you know? And really to me, that's the fact that it's open source, that how it's done and how it's made is available to everyone to, you know, possibly even counteract what say some terrible government would do, you know, with, with being able to control biology at this level. So you have that. And, and that just goes to show, I mean, on sovereign tech, we talk a lot of times about open source and how, how important it is, um, you know, to, to have that, that kind of that transparency, to have that accountability that exists out there so that people can see, uh, you know, everything that goes into everything. And granted, we can't all know, like I said in the last segment, all right, we can't all know everything. We're not all polymaths, you know, and I think today there's just so much knowledge out there. It's pretty much impossible for one person to know it all as hard as I've tried. Um, you just, you can't, um, you know, you can't all know it all, but you can support and trust, you know, there's a phrase out there now that, that I love. It's, it's called trust the geeks. And we can, you know, that that's just really it. We can trust the geeks. We trust the geeks with Bitcoin. We trust the geeks with uh, so many things with, you know, with what we do on the Internet, uh, you know, even Liberty stuff. You know, we're, we're trusting. We trust people that create like a like CryptoCat, which is, uh, you know, a cryptographic, um, you know, messaging service. We trust them that they're not doing anything with it. We trust the guys that develop Tor that they're not doing anything, uh, you know, uh, uh, malevolent you know, with this technology. So trust the geeks, in my opinion. And I, I think this is really actually just very exciting stuff and not so much anything to worry about. This is Brian Sovereign. I'll be back with more Sovereign Tech. Are you ready? I've never seen anyone so treated like a, a god in my life. Brian Sovereign as guest co-host tomorrow night. And so that should be a good show. On that note, uh, what we just we added Brian Sovereign. Okay, we haven't. Oh, is he good? He's been in the audience. He's, oh, yeah, he's certainly got opinions on things. Yes. I'm so close to being like God. No one is above me. Okay, absolutely no one. I don't take <laughs> orders from anybody. And I mean that—that's how much closer to God can you get? Is there anything he doesn't do better than everyone else? 
Oh, that's just his way of talking. He's one of the best. Break it down! Catch Sovereign Tech, the show about technology and how it can set you free with me, Brian Sovereign. That's S-O-V-R-Y-N at SoundCloud.com slash Sovereign Tech. website of the week it is time for website of the week where i discuss websites that i consider you know maybe helpful for my listeners or something that i've found very helpful uh or just you know really well done you know maybe even a website that almost looks like fine art (laughs) you know what i mean and this website that i'm going to talk about this week is actually falls under the very helpful category um and it's uh, becoming who you are.net. Now in the last segment, we talked a little bit about how, you know, doing, uh, psychology, you know, or, um, you know, looking into yourself, working on yourself, uh, all those kinds of things, you know, can really like therapeutic type things can really help you out and kind of bring you to that, that next level, you know, of who you are. And this is the site, in my opinion, to go to to at the very least get started on it, but it can take you all the way in my opinion. Um, this is really, really great stuff. It's becoming who you are.net. And again, it is, you know, it is very philosophical. It's very psychological and there's all kinds of, um, it's by Hannah Brame. She has uh, multiple books available. A couple of them you have to purchase, but they're great. There's the guide to sentence completion. Um, there's uh, the ultimate guide to journaling, which is great. I've read that. Uh, very journaling is a very, very helpful thing to do. Uh, she has other, there's, there's some free books on there. Uh, the five most common blocks to authentic living. Uh, she also, she offers coaching through the website. I mean, there's just, there's, there's tons here. Uh, she has a podcast that is, I actually listened to an episode the other day, which had just had things I, I never even really thought about before. Uh, it, it was, it was amazing. And one of the things I really, really love about this, because I know what, I know what you're thinking when you're, when you start thinking, okay, I need to go see a therapist. You know, a lot of people just instantly go, look, there's nothing wrong with me. Why, why do I have to go see a therapist? That's not, that's ridiculous. You know, you're insulting me and I can, I can totally understand that way of thinking. You know, I think all of us have kind of been there one way or the other, uh, or one time or another. And that society kind of like teaches that. But this is, this is the beauty of becoming who you are, pretty much everything on there. It's not judging and it's not telling you that you're defective. It's not telling you that you're broken. Okay. You know, it's saying that there's further to go, that you can be more happy by working on these things. It's not saying you're not happy. It's saying that you can be more. It's very powerful because so many, so many of these different philosophical and psychological, you know, uh, commentators or, or people, whatever, are just always telling you, yeah, no, you're messed up. Sorry. Um, and you're messed up forever. And actually that was one of the powerful things the, the podcast I mentioned earlier, um, uh, that, that Hannah Brame did through, through becoming who you are uh, came right out and said the idea that you're just always, you know, like you're always broken is, you know, just isn't so. And that's amazing. I, I loved hearing that. Uh, just a, a fantastic, fantastic, uh, you know, statement to make in, especially in the world of like therapy and self-therapy. 
So there's all kind of, like I say, there's a podcast here. Um, there's great links to websites. There's tons of tools. Uh, she offers uh, personal coaching, I believe on the website. Um, you know, there's even like wallpapers to put, you know, to put on your background to keep you, you know, thinking about things uh, like one that says act, don't react. It's just, it's loaded and I can't recommend it enough. Great, great resource to look at. Becomingwhoyouare.net. Check it out. This is Brian Sovereign. I'll be back with more. For 90 seconds on sex with Dr. Paul. It's simply not possible for a couple to become pregnant without a male partner's participation. Yet the instructions that most young men receive about birth control is limited to information about condoms, which are not one of the more highly effective methods of contraception. Now, while a lot of young men are interested or curious about birth control, they often feel as comfortable talking to a new partner about contraception and unwanted pregnancy as they are talking to her about tampons and period gear. One of the big problems with not teaching young males about birth control pills, IUDs, the patch, the implant, and the NuvaRing, is we never give them the words to know how to have an intelligent conversation with a partner about different forms of birth control. So we're basically blindfolding them regarding a life-creating and life-changing event. We think it's important that high school students graduate with a knowledge of geometry and algebra that few will use in their lifetimes. Yet we place no value whatsoever on their graduating with the knowledge about effective kinds of birth control, which is something that will impact each and every one of them for the rest of their lives. If the only kind of birth control you know about is condoms, please visit different birth control websites and learn about the options that are more effective. For more, visit 90secondsonsex.com. It is time for listener emails. And, you know, just before I get into listener emails, I just want to make a couple other points about uh, that are relative to our website of the week. And, you know, becomingwhoyouare.net, it's, it's all about living authentically, you know, really being you, not being someone else, you know, not being even, I mean, there's, there's talk about like, you know, the false self and the true self, all of which is really interesting, but it's all about being the true self or at least respecting and listening to the true self, you know, and, and again, living authentically. And I like to think of it, someone a while back made the great, uh, made the great point of that doing things like this, doing this kind of self therapy or looking into living authentically is sort of like hacking your brain, you know, to work its most efficiently. And, you know, it's, it's like, it's like trying to fix like bugs in the software. You know what I mean? And I think that that is so, so powerful, great stuff to do, you know? And, and I mean, cause the, the more efficient, you know, the more honest, uh, that we can be, you know, I think the greater our lives are in general. So just a great thing. So again, just a, one more time, becoming who you are.net, check that out, uh, and live authentically that that's, and you know, live the good life and you know, sovereign Tech's all about living the good life. So listener email, here we go. And this one was actually sent. It's anonymous, but it was sent through the, through sovereign 
which has a built-in, you know, ask Brian a question feature. So you don't have to actually even use the email sovereigntech at hush.ai. You can just use sovereigntech.com uh, to, to ask me a question. And it's how do I build a mining rig? Okay, what is a mining rig? Mining rig is a computer designed to build, or I mean a computer, a, a computer designed and built to mine bitcoins, litecoins, maybe even terracoins, even though I hear terracoins are kind of in some degree of trouble, um, or name coins, PP coins, uh, for, uh, I don't know. There's one that begins with an F now that I can't remember the name of it, but anyway, so you have all these kinds of coins and how do we get them? You have to mine them. Now to describe how mining exactly works, I recommend going to weusecoins.org. Um, which is a website that has a nice little video that explains kind of how it works. Uh, that would, it'd take me a while to really explain the, you know, the, the bare bones of, of mining to you. Um, so how do we build a mining rig? How do we build a computer that mines for bitcoins or litecoins or something else? And you know, it's a great question. And in fact, uh, just as of this recording, I am presently building a mining rig. Um, you, you know, and the, the machine that's getting built right now, uh, I will say runs on the order of $2,000. Okay. Let's get price right out of the way. Um, and I think a machine to do, you know, a, 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 a really good job of mining. Okay. Because your mining is, is measured in hash rates. You know, the, the speed at which it can process through the various blocks of mining again, check out weusecoins.org to, to, you know, to, to understand a lot of that. And you're looking for the highest hash rate possible. And to really make it worth your while, there's websites that, that, that you can look up that actually tell you, you know, what you can expect from mining based on the hash rate that you're getting with the hardware that you put together with the mining rig that you've built. Okay. But what I can do is I can give you an overview you know, all that stuff's great to look into, but what I, but what the question's asking and what I'm going to give you is an overview of a really great machine, you know, to, to build. Um, again, this looked, this ended up being around $2,000. You could probably shave off maybe $300 off of that. Um, and I'll explain why the main thing with mining, the, the real key is, uh, the video cards, okay. The GPUs, graphic processing units, the, the video cards are, are the, that's, that's what really matters. You want as many video cards as you can. Generally the best motherboards. Now this is all getting kind of technical. Okay. But I'm going to try and I'll try and keep it as layman as I can. Okay. All you're building is a computer. So you have a motherboard. These are the parts you're going to need. All right. You have a motherboard, a CPU. Okay. The processor, a motherboard processor, power supply, Ram, video cards, and of course a, a case and 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 the hard drive. Okay, uh, may you might need a DVD drive to you know to install the operating system on with it. You know that that's up to you. So those are the parts you need. Okay. As far as each one, now again we're talking about the okay we're talking about the video cards. You want as many as you can. The the average that you can and then like with the most video cards you can have on you know, in a computer is four. Okay. Uh, there are very few motherboards. All right. Which is like the big board that you see inside the computer, you know, that's laying flat. The motherboard, the average one can only handle like two or three. 
Okay, so you're going to have to hash out for a high-end motherboard if you want to put all four video cards on. And this is where I'm saving you. This is where I'm saying you can save three or three hundred, four hundred bucks if you don't go for the fourth video card. You can get a lower-end motherboard because the motherboard quality isn't a big deal. Okay, the video card quality is a very big deal. But the motherboard, you as long as it fits what you want to put on it, it's fine. It does. It doesn't have to be anything special. Okay. Uh, as far as the processor goes, you know, you, there's no reason the processor goes onto the motherboard. There's no reason not to get anything other than quad core. Okay. Now remember, this isn't the video cards we're talking about. We're not talking about GPUs. We're talking about a CPU central processing unit. That one you can, you know, it, it's not a big deal, but there's no reason not to get a quad core. And if it's above the, the speeds on a processor, if it's above three gigahertz, you're fine. So that's what I recommend is something three uh, quad core, three gigahertz and above getting they sell octa cores. Now AMD sells six cores. Um, I don't think there's any real benefit to be had out of putting that much extra power. So you can save a little bit of money there. As far as the power supply, the power supply has to handle however many video cards you're going to put into this, which is either two, three or four, I would assume. Um, you can get away with one, I imagine, but anyway, you, you want to spend the good money on a, on a serious, on a power supply. Power supplies have various wattages and I recommend making sure that the wattage you're getting is over a thousand Watts, uh, for the power supply. Okay. And if you're look, if you're going to have multiple video cards, what you want to look for is see if it says, if the, um, if the power supply says SLI ready. Okay. What that means is that it can handle multiple video cards. Um, now with, with the video, with Ram, uh, the Ram chips, you only need eight, eight gig, nothing, nothing uses eight gig of Ram, nothing. I have a laptop with 12 gig of Ram. It's had, it's had 12 gig of Ram in it for over two years and just, you know, there's no game that pushes the Ram that far. I don't, it doesn't matter. Nothing pushes Ram that hard to where, you know, like some, like the, the rig I'm building right now actually can handle 32 gig of Ram. And there's just, there's no, there's no need for that. Maybe years down the line, but right now nothing uses that much Ram. Um, I mean, unless maybe I was doing like some kind of video editing, but then I, I would be getting a much different graphics set of graphics cards. Um, because it, it, that'd be a different purpose anyway. So let's get to, you know, the case, the, the computer case that you get for it. If you're building the mining rig is got to be pretty big, uh, because it's going to be handling, maybe, you know, if you're doing this, it can, it's handling four video cards. Okay. Now, as far as the video, you know, oh, quick with the hard drive, with the hard drive, it doesn't matter. Get any hard drive. That's not, that's not that important. Just make sure it's something called SATA. S-A-T-A, okay? As long as it's a SATA hard drive, you're fine. You don't, you know, don't don't worry about that. Um, but let's talk the video cards where it all really matters. And the best video card apparently um, is what's called an, uh, an AMD or ATI. They're the same thing. Uh, the Radeon 7950. Now, that's not the best, but that's the one that, like, gets your best bang for the buck. Okay. And the cheapest ones run 300 bucks. There's just no choice around that. They cost $300 a pop. So if you're going to get four of them, you know, you're, you're looking at 1200 bucks. Um, that's where the most of your money is going to be spent when you build a, when you build a mining rig. Okay. Is on the video cards. Now, 
Why the 7950? Why AMD ATI? The reasoning behind that, first off, is that 7950 is pretty close to the highest end. The highest end that ATI makes is, uh, the, I believe, the 7970 or uh, now. And so, you know, it, it's a couple models back. So it's, you know, so it has that lower price. Because, I mean, a 7970, you're going to hash out $1,200 for one video card as to where you can get four 7950s for the same price. Do you see my point? When there isn't like that big of a, there really isn't that huge of a jump. Not as far as mining rigs go anyway. Um, the other important part of that is why am I buying an AMD and not an NVIDIA? Why am I buying an AMD ATI and not an NVIDIA video card? Because isn't NVIDIA like the best video cards for gaming and whatever? All true. Yes. NVIDIA cards are the, they are the class act of computing. Okay. No question about it. NVIDIA comes up with incredible stuff. It's an amazing company doing amazing things. And they're, they're going, they're branching out way beyond even video cards, but they like their, their drivers. Okay. What actually operates the video card, the drivers, the software that operates the video card on the computer are all proprietary. And as to where AMD ATI, you know, with their 7950s or any other Radeon cards are all open source. And because they're open source, you can tweak, you know, just how much juice you get out of these things on a mining rig. You see what I'm saying? You see, you see the difference. Okay. If, if you're doing anything other than the mining rig, I generally tell you, go ahead and buy NVIDIA. You know, if you're running a Windows gaming machine, buy NVIDIA. But for a mining rig, you want to go AMD ATI. AM, a ATI will, used to be is a video card company. It used to be its own company. Then AMD bought it. So that's why I keep saying AMD ATI, just so you understand. Uh, and it can be confusing because if you go to, like, Amazon, sometimes they'll list the 7950 as an AMD 7950 or they'll list it as an ATI 7950. Do you see, see the confusion there? Okay, so there you go. There's your mining rig as far as like hardware, what you need. You want, you know, if you if you can do four video cards, go for it. If you can't, you know, do three, do two. And if you can only do one, you can only do one. But, you know, you're just, you're not going to mine as much. And you have to ask the question, is it really worth my time to run, you know, a computer of that, you know, with even just that much power of one video card uh, to how much Litecoin or Bitcoin I'm going to get out of it? And, you know, that's something you have to decide, uh, you know, if, if your electric bill is okay with that. Um, as far as software, the operating system, I recommend putting on Windows 7 because most, even though while there's a lot of people who use Linux to do mining, uh, most of the, like, software is very easily written, like GUI Miner, which is the mining software that I recommend. Uh, I may link to it in the show notes to where to find GUI miner. Uh, all this stuff works beautifully in windows seven. Um, so that's my recommendation for an operating system. It just, it installs very simply. It runs in a nice little icon. You don't have to download any dependencies like you would with Linux or whatever. Um, you know, and, and obviously a mining rig, guess what? You're not going to do a whole lot of mining with a Mac. That's, that's how it is. Um, so, so I hope that kind of, that gives you a good overview of, of a mining rig and what it takes. Uh, those are the specs that you want. 
If you have other questions, you can email me quick, uh, you know, or hit up Google, Google, you know, there's, there's whole forums where people talk about how to do these great things, but this is what I recommend. You, you got to expect to spend, you know, anywhere between 1500 to $2,000 to do this to where I think you're going to get value, you know, and, and you will get value because really, if you spend that much money on it, the machine's going to pay for itself in like a month. You see what I'm saying? Okay. Well, if you have more questions, email me, SovereignTechAndHush.ai. This is Brian Sauber. In the third age of mankind, an age plagued by an evil empire that seeks to destroy humanity, it is our last, best hope for peace. It is Babylon 5. You can watch Babylon 5 and experience the greatest show in television history. See the entire series completely free by going to the wb.com slash shows slash Babylon 5. Software of the Week. It is time for software of the week. And this week, this is a really cool piece of software. Um, you know, I don't know if you use like Google drive or Dropbox or iCloud. Uh, you know, there's a lot of these different kinds of services that have, that are very, very, very popular and rightfully so, because what's the purpose of the cloud? Like what, what does that allow for? Well, you can, you know, back up all your files. Uh, you can share files easily. Uh, you can, you know, access like multiple computers in the house and access all the same files in the same spot because it's all in the cloud and you don't have to actually, ooh, excuse me. You don't have to actually like literally carry it around with you. Um, you know, like on a flash drive from computer to computer, you can just access it over the internet, which is great. But there's a lot of people that have kind of like privacy concerns where they're like, yeah, you know, I don't want Google to have all my stuff or I don't want Dropbox to have everything. Or sometimes these services go down and I don't trust them. Um, and that's all, you know, that's relatively valid. I mean, my opinion, as far as like with Google Dropbox, I could see crashing, but as far as like with Google, if Google ever crashes, like if Google somehow ever ends to where they're going to lose all your data and all this stuff, you know, for like everybody, um, the world's over because the world in a very real sense runs on Google. So, but if you want your own cloud, you're like, yeah, you know, I love the idea of the cloud, but I just, you know, I, I can't get behind these companies having my stuff. Here's your answer. And it's called own cloud, O W N cloud. Um, and now is there something to the idea that because it's called own cloud and that's NWO backwards, that it's actually the new world order taking over your information, what, whatever. Anyway, <laughs> sorry that, that that's me being kind of funny, but I get the feeling some people would actually believe that. Um, so you, you have own cloud. Okay. It's free. It's open source. Uh, I mean, there are premium like products that they, they, they do offer, but you could, you know, you could build a server machine in your house and have that be your own personal cloud. And, and this software sets it all up so you can access files. Uh, you can look at pictures, you know, it works just kind of just like Google drive, you know, where you can open stuff up. It, it even has like a music tab where you can put all your music onto one machine and it connects, it has software for Android and iPhone. 
So you can actually connect to your cloud through your smartphone, through your own personal cloud. It's really, really cool. I mean, you know, it takes a little setting up, uh, no doubt about it. Now, and I've got an article from Lifehacker that's in the in the show notes that tells that helps you how to set it up. Okay, so I'll make sure that's where it's linked to, and then of course that will link to OwnCloud's website to where you can download it from. But I mean, this is great. Setting up your own clouds, you know what I mean? Doing personal cloud computing and being able to access your stuff. Like, I mean, that, that's just it. You can leave your house, you know, and through your smartphone still access your music collection um, or access, you know, your contacts or files or you can back up stuff while you're on the road. You can back up stuff that are on that's on your phone or your tablet and you can back it up to your cloud at home. I mean, this is this is really, really cool stuff when you when you think about it. So I, I can't can't recommend it enough. Uh, again, it's called OwnCloud. Um, you can go to OwnCloud.com to download it. Or again, in the show notes, there is a link to a Lifehacker article that tells you how to set up the music server, how to sync your calendar, uh, an address book, and everything right on you know right onto it. You know at at home. Uh, just a, a top. Really, it, it's a it's a top notch uh, setup. And you know, I mean, and there, there's people who ask about this, you know, how can I, I don't, I just, I don't trust other people with, with all my, uh, you know, information. And so here you go, you know, trust yourself and set up your own cloud system that can work from anywhere, you know, and if you want, hide the, hide the server <laughs> that you put it all on, you know what I mean? And, and, and encrypt it. And there you go. This is Brian Sovereign and I'll be back with more. What does freedom mean? Tune in to LRN.FM to find out. LRN.FM is the Liberty Radio Network, a collection of live talk radio and podcasts, all coming from a principled pro-liberty perspective. LRN.FM show hosts aren't left, right, or conspiracy kooks. You can tune in 24-7 to LRN.FM via your phone, computer, satellite, and more. Listen free anytime at LRN.FM. That's LRN.FM. Stop playing those video games! Uh, 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 just a minute, Mom. Game Talk. It is time for Game Talk. Often my favorite part of the show. Um, you know, sometimes we talk about good things, and sometimes we talk about bad things and with Game Talk. Uh, but, you know, either way, it's fun. And... This week we have an article from uh, Kotaku. This is actually this is kind of an older one. Uh, it's from February of 2013, but it's about one of the you know it's about Warren Spector. Warren Spector is a guy in in the gaming industry, highly respected. He's come up with just these incredibly original games. Um, in particular, one that a lot of people may know is called Day X, uh, which has had uh, recent you know. Uh, sequels come out or prequels I should say like uh, um, I, I forget sorry I forget what the new one's called or Human Revolution that's, it's like Day X Human Revolution that's the new one and you know Warren Spector when he speaks you know people listen because he has come up with such innovative games and this article he was at a talk um, uh, for, for Dice which is a gaming company uh, that makes like Battlefield and some other ones uh, he was in Las Vegas and the, well, the article goes, Warren Spector doesn't think lollipop chainsaw 
should have been made. Now, Lollipop Chainsaw is a game where, I mean, it's, it's, it's just full of tropes. You know, it's this, it's this woman, you know, in a cheerleader outfit carrying a chainsaw. Um, and you know, there, there's in the game, like there's zombies or whatever, you know, that she has to, I mean, it's, 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 it's a mix. It's a degree, admittedly, it's a degree of mix of like sex and violence. Um, and incredibly stylish too. So anyway, we'll read the article here. Warren Spector, one of the most respected designers out there and lead creator of the revered day X did something unusual for a game designer today. Now, real quick day X. One of the things that makes it like why it's so revered is because what, what shocked a lot of people is that you didn't have to actually be violent to solve the game. Um, I mean, by and large, you could like, you know, you could just sneak around in the game and, 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 you know, and it's like a first person shooter and you could essentially win without shooting anybody, which is amazing in my opinion and very enjoyable. But anyway, uh, at a talk at the dice convention in Las Vegas, he named a name or at least he let one of his slides name the name of a game that he says should just not be made. The game Warner brother Warner brothers and grasshopper manufactures violent lowbrow game lollipop chainsaw. Uh, this came up as Spectre took his small audience of a few hundred game designers, executives and reporters through a personal journey, charting his changes as a gamer and game designer from his twenties to his fifties. Uh, he's 57.33 now. He helpfully noted <laughs> uh, early in his talk. He made a point about how he used to want longer games as he got older. He had less time for them and now craves shorter ones. It's not just about time. It's not just about giving me shorter experiences. It's about the content. My interests in content have changed dramatically. And I suspect this is true for many of you. There are some games that just, that should just not be made by the way. At that moment, when Spectre showed, said that Spectre showed an image of lollipop chainsaw. This would not be the first time Spectre has complained about today's hyperviolent video games, but he's not gone out of his way to be specific. Here he did. Some members of the audience chuckled. I'll not try to be too obnoxious, he continued. When I was younger, that's all I needed. All I needed was to differentiate myself from other people. If, I, if it was going to convince my mother that I was a juvenile delinquent, I was there. I needed to be transgressive. Uh, adrenaline rush and spectacle were all I needed. I don't think I was alone in that. Maybe I'm just shallow. When you're this age, spectacle is plenty and blood sprays and all that stuff is really kind of what you're looking for because you really want to alienate people in a strange sort of way. You want to shock people and you want to be different. Not so much anymore. I have no interest in guys who wear armor and swing big swords. I have been the last space Marine between earth and an alien invasion. I really just don't need to go there anymore. I want content that is relevant to my life. That is relevant to me. That is set in the real world. If we're going to reach a broader audience, we have to stop thinking about that audience strictly in terms of teenage boys or even teenage girls. We need to think about things that are relevant to normal humans and not just the geeks we used to be. He went on to commend Heavy Rain and The Walking Dead as two of the best experiences he's had in a game in gaming in a while. Both games made the the quotidian interesting. Uh, interesting. Both games were about real emotions, and could make even a simple meal a gripping, uh, interactive experience. Okay, so now he had a lot more, you know, a lot more to say on on a lot of that, but. 
it's an interesting, I mean, you know, here's a guy, granted, this guy was never, he had, you know, he admits that there was a point where he was into that sort of thing, but here's a guy that, that really hasn't designed a whole lot of violent games. So he's putting his money where his mouth is. You know what I mean? It's not like he's saying, yeah, you know, okay, I made a million dollars off of this really violent game and now I hate them. Uh, you know, this is a guy that that's delivered on exactly what he's saying. Um, and I think it, it raises, you know, this goes beyond gaming really when he's saying that, you know, when I was younger, I just wanted to, like, I, I wanted to be different. And if me blowing up, you know, a ton of people or like, you know, doing some kind of horrendous, like really, uh, vicious, violent thing, you know, turn people off. Good. He wanted, he wanted to do that. He just wanted to be different. He didn't want to be violent. He just wanted to be different. And that's, and I wonder, you know, if gamers need to ask themselves that question, you know, why I think it's always a good thing to like, maybe sometimes sort of step out of your brain a little bit, step out of your thoughts, step back and ask yourself, why am I thinking this way? Very, very important thing to do. And also, you know, why am I doing what I'm doing right now? And, you know, when you're playing Call of Duty or something, maybe step back for a second. Why am I doing this? You know, and sometimes, I mean, gaming has kind of changed and he doesn't really address this because gaming has become a very social thing now. Not that it's talked about a lot, which it is, but in that you connect with a lot of people through video gaming. You connect to people through, you know, your Xbox Live account. And when you're playing, you know, Black Ops 2, you're connecting with people. Okay, I understand that he doesn't address that and he keeps it way too simple. Okay. Um, so, you know, he's not answering those questions, but I do like the idea that he's saying, you know, okay, why don't we look back and see exactly why we're, why we're doing this. And maybe the reason game sales are starting to go down is because we're not actually making games are so real now. They're so real, but they're not actually applying to our life the way we want them to, or they're not something that we can really integrate anymore. Um, which, you know, all, all great questions. Now, as far as lollipop chainsaw in particular, I thought it was a stunningly stylish stylistic game. Um, and I am not one, I, I hope the listeners of my show know this, you know, I am not one for violence by any means. Uh, but I found it to be, you know, just a, a so ridiculous and over the top is kind of like Duke Nukem where, you know, Duke Nukem is just so crazy. You can't take seriously what's happening on the screen and it doesn't apply to real life at all. It doesn't make you want to go kill anybody. And so I kind of lollipop chainsaw. I kind of chalked up to like the Duke Nukem syndrome where it's just so insane. So over the top, uh, you know, and maybe even hypersexualized to a degree that, you know, woohoo. And, and it, and it just, for some, I can, if someone came up to me and said, yeah, you know, lollipop chainsaw was just a good time. I'd be like, yeah, no, I hear you. You know what I mean? It's not as bad. And I really wish he, he, he should have like said this. He should have been going after like battlefield three, um, or counter-strike or something and saying, you know, Hey, look guys, these games shouldn't be made. Why are we even, you know, cause talk about things that shouldn't apply to life. Why, why would we want to apply war to our life? You know, and he doesn't really say that. And I wish he did. Uh, but all the same, you know, it, it, it's great questions. You know, are you just into certain things because you want to tick your mom off? 
you know, are you into certain things just because you want to be different from society and, you know, you don't want to be the muggles or something? Yeah, great question. And Warren Spector, you know, I mean, this is a guy, again, he can talk. This is Brian Sovereign. I'll be right back with more Sovereign Tech. Are you searching for a mouthwatering, all-natural, sweet and sticky treat? What if I told you it was also made by a chef who believes in freedom, just like you? You're not dreaming. This is real. Head over to mandrik.com. That's M-A-N-D-R-I-K.com. There you'll find George's famous baklava in classic and dark chocolate flavors. Mm. To those with special health needs, George's famous baklava also has a treat for you. Golden delicious, low-carb, gluten-free almond cookies. Order with PayPal or Bitcoins. In just a few days, your sweet treats will await you right at your doorstep. One more time, that's M-A-N-D-R-I-K dot com for George's Famous Baklava. Hacker Stories. It is time for Hacker Stories, where I get to talk about some of the real heroes of the world, black hat, white hat, gray hat, whatever. We talk about hackers. And this week, this is what I'm about to talk about isn't like very fun. Um, and it's pretty, it's pretty serious and it's, it's hacking. That is an answer to, or maybe not an answer, but is, is in response to a very real, you know, to a very serious thing that's happening in the world that is affecting millions of lives. Um, and the article, this is from the examiner and we, we actually have kind of two articles here, but it's anonymous. And that's the hacker group anonymous launches operation Israel and fights for Palestinian human rights. Um, we'll read a little bit here in the fight for Palestinian human rights. Anonymous has launched the largest cyber offensive in internet history. Operation Israel, otherwise known as hashtag op Israel. The virtual campaign is billed as the largest internet battle in the history of mankind that will wipe Israel off the map of the internet and is being launched by hacktivists affiliated with the international collective known as anonymous in order to, to protest Israeli policies in Gaza and the West bank on April 6th, hacktivist 2013 hacktivists associated uh, with Operation Israel released a statement via YouTube announcing the beginning of Operation Israel. The following is an ex excerpt from that video. To the government of Israel, you have not stopped your endless human right violations. You have not stopped illegal settlements. You have not respected the ceasefire. You have shown that you do not respect international law. This is why that on April 7th, elite, elite cyber squadrons from around the world have decided to unite in solidarity with the Palestinian people against Israel as one entity to disrupt and erase Israel from cyberspace. We are anonymous. We are legion. We do not forgive. We do not forget to the government of Israel. It is too late to expect us on Twitter. Operation Israel is being coordinated via uh, they give a hashtag here. You can find it in the show notes for Sovereign Tech uh, and can be followed. Yeah, okay. At the time of uh, publication, multiple reports of hacks, defacement, leaks, and other forms of cyber protest are flooding in from around the web. Israeli websites affected by the action could very well number into the thousands before all is said and done. Said and done. Okay. So Anonymous is essentially declaring cyber war. 
And this uh, next article is from the Times of Israel. And as cyber war begins, Israeli hackers hit back. And we'll read from this briefly. Uh, Anti-Israeli ha- anti-Israel hackers stepped up their attempts to pull down Israeli sites over the weekend. With numerous attempted denial-of-service attacks against Israeli government sites, uh, hacker sites listed numerous websites they claimed to have disabled, and several sites reported slowdowns on Saturday night, but nearly all the sites the hackers claimed to have taken down were operating normally. Among the sites the experienced, the, that experienced actual downtime due to attacks were those of Israel's Education Ministry and the Central Bureau of Statistics, which was still offline as of Sunday morning. Uh, meanwhile, Israeli hackers began to re- retaliate against the anti-Israel hack attacks called Hashtag Op Israel, with an operation of their own against sites in countries associ- associated with the anti-Israel groups. A group called the Israeli Elite Strike Force over the weekend uh, disabled dozens of sites in Pakistan, Iran, Syria, and several other African countries, and even acquired a domain name uh, associated with the Op Israel attack, opisrael.com. Instead of listing the sites as anti-Israel hackers had defaced, that site features educational facts about Israel and the Jewish people and a warning to anti-Israel groups that Israeli hackers were ready to fight fire with fire. Israeli elite strike force seems to have organized quickly in the past few days in response to the threat by anti-Israel hackers to erase Israel from the Internet on April 7th. The hackers released a list of some 1,300 Israeli sites that they plan to strike, planning to have begun their attacks already on Saturday. But a check of most of the sites that the hackers claim to have disabled, sites belonging to the Bank of Israel, the Tax Authority, Central Bureau of Statistics, and other government agencies, showed they were operating normally. Several sites were hacked by groups associated with Op Israel, but most of those were privately owned sites. Uh, the hackers claim to be identified with Anonymous, uh, but Dr. Tal Pavel of Middle Easternet said that the group behind Opera Israel was most likely an ad hoc assembly of Arab hacktivists calling themselves dangerous hackers. The group has not necessarily associated with international hacking group Anonymous, Pavel said. Uh, and on Saturday, individuals claiming to be members of Anonymous posted on the forum site 4chan that they were not associated with Op Israel. However, another alleged anonymous site, possibly located in Sweden, on Saturday night claimed that anonymous hackers were involved in the anti-Israel cyber attack. Um, And then, meanwhile, Israeli elite strike force uh, worked on Saturday night to pull down more sites. The group started attacking sites in Pakistan Friday, but took off for Shabbat which Shabbat is Sabbath, that's Friday night to Saturday night. So the the hackers, um, sorry, it's it's kind of not funny, but uh, I guess if you want to take on if you want to take on the Israeli elite strike force, do it do it on the Sabbath because uh, they're not doing anything. Uh, anyway, the elite strike force said, "We wish all our Jewish brothers a Shabbat Shalom." The group said in its Twitter feed, "This was just a little taste before the day of rest. Uh, hell's first to come." Okay. Now the Israeli Palestinian. Uh, conflict, whatever you want to call it, situation is unfortunate, doesn't do it enough justice. What's going on over there? Um, by the, I do not consider myself such, but by the popular standards of the world, by again, by the popular standards of the world, I am a Jew. 
Um, it's, it's just how it is. I have family in Israel, um, you know, family that I guess, and, and friends, you know, to some degree that I guess I would consider close that live there. Um, you know, so am, am I being, you know, anti-Semitic and reporting this or anything? No, uh, clearly not. And, you know, I, without getting into a tirade about the whole Israeli-Palestinian problem, okay, this, I am led to believe far more, uh, and I've actually gotten a couple emails to more confirm this, that this is, this is an anonymous doing this. This is actually, this is a, uh, a hacktivist group called Dangerous Hackers. Um, and it's a very personal thing that they're doing. This is not some kind of like international incident that is occurring, even though it's being treated as such by most people. Um, you know, th this is a very personal little battle that's going on. And quite frankly, I mean, Israel, you know, th this, th there's updates on this every day, but Israel won this little battle sadly with or not sadly Israel won this, this battle with ease. Um, they took out the main site that, uh, you know, supposedly anonymous again, I, I don't think it was anonymous. It was dangerous hackers. Uh, the group called dangerous hackers that they were doing it. They, I mean, it just, it didn't even, it barely phased and it's true. It, it barely phased the country. Um, which is another reason that I'm kind of led to believe that, Anonymous wasn't involved in this because if Anonymous did it, it probably you would have seen it happen. I mean, Anonymous has done like against like the, the the United States Department of Defense and all that stuff. I mean, they've they've just done such insane things in the past. Um, you know that that I would have expected more if it really was Anonymous uh, doing it. And you know, so again, this is a very personal thing. This is not something for the whole maybe for the whole world to see. It is something for the whole world to pay attention to, you know, but I did not, some people were saying, ah, yes, you know, finally some solidarity there. I don't think there's any solidarity in this with anonymous's actions. Um, you know, this is just one, one group that has a, you know, a very understand what I think is to, to a degree a, an understandable personal score that they're trying to, to settle with, you know, with Israel. Uh, and clearly they did, they did, they still did a, an impressive job in, in taking down a couple of Israeli sites, but by and large, it's not as big as what the news is making it out to be. Um, but it's interesting to look at because it may be a preview of the kind of wars that are to come, in a, you know, in an even grander sense. So this is Brian Sovereign and I'll be right back with more. This is Stephanie Murphy, Sovereign Tech Producer. You may know me from this show, but did you know that I have my own podcast? It's called Pork Therapy. Pork Therapy is a bit different from other shows. We cover current events, big ideas, and even relationship issues, all through the lens of how we can get more freedom in our lives. Oh, and you'll love Sex and Science Hour. Join me on my website, porktherapy.com. That's P-O-R-C therapy.com. Now back to Sovereign Tech. doing? I can't believe I caught you again. You know, Jesus doesn't approve of this little habit of yours. I know, baby, I know it's wrong, but it feels so right. Well, it ain't. But I've been doing it since I was 12 years old. <sighs> it's nothing but a sinful perversion of nature, if you ask me. 
but baby, I don't ever want to stop looking at tech websites, new gadgets, video games, software, or any of that stuff. Well, then I'm leaving. Okay. Bye. Pick of the Week. It is time for Pick of the Week, where I get to talk about, as usual, whatever I want to talk about. I guess, you know, it could be said that pretty pretty much the whole show, the Rembrandt of the podcast canvas, gets to talk about whatever he wants to talk about. Because generally, except for a couple segments, I, you know, I pick the topic. Uh, so I suppose, but this kind of gives me the freedom to, like, maybe go full geek sometimes, uh, or maybe to, you know, just just do something absolutely ridiculous or maybe even talk about, uh, you know, a, a bit of a hobby of mine and, and it's just a hobby. It's not something I, I believe this stuff, but it is a hobby of mine. And, and one of my hobbies is conspiracy theories. Um, I think when you, you know, I grew up, I grew up, uh, I was raised Jewish and then halfway through being raised, uh, my family became Christians and, you know, when, when you go through kind of a roller coaster ride like that, you can't help but get into like, like conspiracies, you know, because, you know, one, one religion thinks there's a conspiracy against the other religion and all that stuff. So you kind of get like a natural flavor to them. So I, they've become a hobby of mine and, and since becoming an atheist, uh, even more so anyway, so what I have here, I have a book and this is an incredible book, no matter if you believe anything that it says or not, uh, it is an amazingly well-researched, um, and I mean, again, yet you can question the sources, but it is an amazingly well-researched book. It is an exceptionally popular book and, uh, you know, there's just, it's, it's, it's a high quality piece of work. Now the book is called dark mission, the secret history of NASA. Um, and this is by Richard Hoagland and Mike Barra. And the, the copy I actually have is the, uh, new edition revised and expanded. Um, in fact, the new edition, which came out in 2011, uh, which is a couple of years after the original release of the book, there's only like a hundred thousand copies of it, uh, that were ever printed. So if you want to get your hands on it, you might want to start looking now because a hundred thousand copies isn't a whole lot, especially when they ship around the world. Um, I think you can get it on Kindle though. So don't, don't expect like, you know, don't, don't worry if, if you can't find a paper copy, you can get the revised edition on, on Kindle, I believe. Anyway, you know, now Richard Hoagland, a lot of people know, may know that name because Richard Hoagland is the guy that in the early nineties, um, he made very popular, this whole face on Mars thing, you know, that there's like a face on Mars. Um, he, uh, he was, I mean, he, he was big with NASA. He worked with, uh, CNN. I mean, the guy is, you know, re- or at least was relatively legitimate. Um, that's how in the nineties he was able to like get a lot of his, I mean, like the face on Mars thing, you have to understand. I mean, when I was growing up, like that was just almost every commercial break that was on. Now this isn't, you know, this is the nineties. This isn't the internet age where anything can get promoted. You had to really be somebody to get your stuff. And like, and you had to have some money behind you to get your stuff promoted on TV back then. And he had it because he was legit. Um, you know, whether he is now to people that's up to you. But anyway, this book, I kind of talked about that we're just coming off of doing the privatized space special. And in that briefly, I mentioned, 
uh, about my theories on the moon. And that's what this is all about. This whole dark mission book is about what really went on essentially in the, you know, in the Apollo moon missions. And, and I mean, there's pictures here, so if you don't like to read, you know, there's some pictures to see, <laughs> but anyway, I briefly touched on it in the, in the sovereign tech special, the privatized space special, um, that I'm kind of of a third camp in, you have the people that believe that the moon landing never happened and that it was all staged, you know, by like Stanley Kubrick or something. And then you have the people who believe that they actually went, you know, and yeehaw America, um, I'm of the third camp that they did go, but they're hiding something. Now, what do I mean by that? Okay. The, the reason there's people who believe we never went is because there's a ton of discrepancies in like photographic evidence in radio evidence and, and all the, all this video evidence, all this stuff. And, and some of them are, are discrepancies that don't have a good answer. Um, some of them do have good answers. There's an episode of Mythbusters that covered a lot of them and they did a great job on, on debunking and whatever. Okay. But I am of the camp that they were hiding something. Now, I don't think that they're hiding aliens. Like when you look at this book, you're going to find there, there's a picture of data's head, what they call data's head, which essentially it's a picture they found. And they're like looking off this rock face on the moon and they look down and they see what looks like an Android head on the ground. Okay. Um, you know, and then they also, they talk about, there's this picture, some of this you can Google, you could Google data's head. You can go to Google images and you can look up data's head and it'll be there. Um, with, there's another one called Mitchell under glass and what it is, it's supposedly a picture of Ed Mitchell inside a glass structure on the moon. And like, you can see like cross beams and all this stuff going, you know, everywhere and everything. And that picture, I just, myself, my own opinion, and everyone's open to believe what they want. Uh, that picture is nonsense. Like they do, uh, Hoagland and Barra in this book, dark mission, they do like some color correction to show you, uh, what's really up there. And I think that color correction, at least in that case is being, I, I think they're being a little extreme. Um, I, I, I don't, when you look at Mitchell under glass, I don't see, I just don't see it. You know, I, yeah, I see what they're saying about the cross beams, but I don't see that as a giant, like glass building. Um, and supposedly that's one of the claims of this book is that there's all these glass structures up there. Um, and a whole lot of that, you know, just doesn't make sense. I mean, and there's a lot more to it too. This isn't just simple conspiracy theory, uh, that they like to lay out in this, you know, and they do talk about Mars. They talk about, you know, Sidonia where there's the face on Mars and that there's pyramids. They even have pictures in the revised edition. There's pictures of what they say is a destroyed city on Mars. And they compare it to a picture of a destroyed city on earth. And then, you know, they do a side by side in the book and you make your decision. I don't know that I see a destroyed city there. That's just me. Again, this is a really, really interesting book though. And it covers a ton of ground. Um, it even talks about hyperdimensional physics, how like a 19.5 degrees, uh, latitude, I think it is. Um, it's been a little while since I've read it. Uh, that, you know, that there is always like these weird things that happen on planets. Um, and like that somehow it's a, it's kind of a gateway to a degree to, to hyperdimensional energies and all this stuff. So, you know, one can say that that, that all sounds crazy, but I'm giving you a very brief explanation and I recommend reading the book for yourself. And it is a long book. You know, I mean, they, they really, they did their homework. Um, and you know, 
and look into it and, and see what you think of that before passing judgment on something that, you know, could sound just as crazy as hyperdimensional physics. An example of what they give is one of these hyperdimensional, like kind of gateway type things would be the, um, you know, the, the giant spot, the storm spot on, uh, on Jupiter. Um, you know, and I don't know if they tried to equate the Bermuda triangle with 19.5 degrees or what, but anyway, you know, very, very interesting read. And, you know, there, there's a lot of questions that get raised with this. Um, in fact, I mean, like the, the opening chapter is, is frankly shocking because it's Richard Hoagland, who, again, he was a legitimate reporter and scientist um, or, you know, reporter anyway. R- Richard Hoagland said, yeah, when we went to see, you know, the Apollo launch, a guy walked around the room and in, and laid down in everybody's chair a paper that said everything you're about to see is a hoax essentially. Like I I don't remember exactly what the paper said, but it it was, it was telling all the reporters there for the Apollo launch that look, this is all staged. This is all faked. It's all being done on sound sets and everything. Um, you know, but you gotta, you gotta make this all look good. And so Hoagland's, his reason for like what he claims though, is that not that actually it was all faked, but he did it so that, he said that they were, the government was doing plausible deniability so that they could say later on, no, look, it was all fake just in case, you know, um, just to keep people from looking in the real direction, which is not that it was not real, but in that it did really happen. And there's just things up there that they don't want you to know about, you know? And of course in Hoagland and Barra's, uh, case, they're saying that it's aliens, or at least, you know, people not of this earth. Uh, a couple things, a couple questions they raise is that, like when Neil Armstrong says, uh, you know, that's one small step for man, one small step for man and one giant leap for mankind. Um, they're, they make the claim that somehow that's like a weird thing to say because he didn't say that's one small step for a man, meaning him. He said one small step for man as in meaning humanity. But then he says in one giant leap for mankind. And so one of their claims is like, wait a minute, what, what does that mean? And so they, they like, they have this theory that he was referencing. He says one small step for man, meaning us, you know, meaning human beings right now. And one giant leap for mankind, meaning this like grander race of humanity that exists in the solar system or that exists in the universe call it what you will call it crazy if you want, you know? Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's cool. One of the things I like about it is that boy, does it get you thinking like, does it really, you know, go tabula rosa with you and, 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 and erase the slate and say, no, let, let's look at it this way. And I love that kind of stuff. I mean, that's part of the reason I enjoy conspiracy theories because for one, there's always a little bit of truth in there. And for two, it's just such a far out way to think and it, and it keeps you from getting into complacency and it keeps you from coming up to the idea that somehow, you know, everything because you don't. Um, so, you know, really enjoyable. There's other stuff, obviously it gets into Freemasonry, how there's a picture. Um, so, you know, and so they have a lot of interesting evidence, you know, they, they, they take some logical leaps, but they have a lot of interesting evidence in that, uh, you know, like, Buzz Aldrin before he was going up, um, they, they had a picture, you know, a glamor shot 
of all the astronauts together. And he actually has, he took his wedding ring off and put on his Masonic ring, his free, his, he's, a, he's a Freemason. Okay. So they put on a Freemasonic ring and they're like, well, why did he do that? What's the deal with that? Um, and they, of course, then they talk about how they had communion on the moon, which that's kind of accepted fact. Yes, they did have a communion service on the moon. Um, and that that was somehow done with Freemasonic rites or whatever, you know, that part's not fact, but the fact that they had communion is, um, so, you know, this is interesting stuff. This all came out long before the, the third transformers movie came out, which talks about that they found transformers on the moon or something. So they obviously stole that, that the people that made transformers stole that idea, uh, from this book, uh, or Yeah. Or, you know, other material like it. I mean, this and this I this book doesn't really go into the idea. There's actually another conspiracy theory about the moon, that the moon is artificial and that it's not real like that. Um, you know, and, and that's that's another I have a book that talks about that. We could talk about that another time. Um, but that's not you know, you say to me, Brian, that that's crazy. But. You know, now we have space agencies around the world that are claiming that the moon around Mars, Phobos, is artificial and that it, it was placed there by somebody. So what do you do with that? I don't know. Anyway, this has been Sovereign Tech. Been a pleasure doing this with you. Uh, please do not hesitate to go to Google+. Plus. Go to SovereignTech.com if you want. You can now donate Bitcoin and Litecoin by request that you've wished if you want to do that. Thank you very, very much for listening. We'll see you next week. This has been Sovereign Tech. Visit us at SovereignTech.com. That's S-O-V-R-Y-N-Tech.com. There you can connect with us, see more of what you've heard on today's show, and catch our podcast feed. Sovereign Tech is open source. We encourage you to share. Later, nerds. Nerds.